tell you, I don't care what they call me. They can call me a Marxist, a Jesuit, a flat earther, a Trotskyite, a vegetarian. I don't care what I'm called. Because I know why they call us names. It's because they dare not face our arguments. Hello, and welcome to the Most Moderate Podcast. A podcast about world federalism and international politics from a leftist perspective. I'm your host, Brandon Farrell. And I'm joined here all the way from Berlin by Esten. Hi. <laughs> We're going to start off with introductions to ourselves so you get to know us. Uh, then we'll hop into just a rapid fire, quick discussion of several news items that we found uh, interesting and important to share to you. Um, with very limited analysis, we'll just be going through the news story. We may comment on why we thought it was interesting, uh, but... We will leave all the links to these news stories in the descriptions uh, so you can read them yourselves. So moving on to the introductions, uh, start off with Esten. So Esten, what's your background? Yeah. So yeah, my name's Esten. I'm from Seattle in the U.S. and I moved to Europe about two and a half years ago for university. Um, I recently went to Berlin in March because of the lockdown um, with my partner. Uh, yeah, so I studied uh, political science for my bachelor's and my master's. So that's my academic background. Um, for work, I am unemployed because of the virus. So I, I finished my master's just to apply for work and to no avail. And I, uh, yeah. But in the meantime, I've become the uh, executive director of the Young World Federalists, which is a very new um, World Federalist organization. Um, it's committed to mobilizing uh, youth support uh, for democratic global governance. Um, and I'm interested in this podcast because um, I sort of grew up during the um, the Bush era and then the Obama era, and uh, I originally wasn't didn't consider myself um, as a leftist or a progressive or a socialist, um, but I became sort of uh, radicalized um, during my time in university in Washington State. Um, so that's where I learned about these ideas. I read the Communist Manifesto when I was like 18, and that really resonated with me. Uh, and then I did a lot of shitty jobs. And then, oh, can we swear? Or is that, should I not yeah. swear? Yeah, okay. I'm going to swear. Okay, cool. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Good. Yeah. I did a lot of, did a lot of shitty jobs. And in the back of my mind was, was the alienation of labor and all this stuff. And I was like, wow, you know, it's like, it was all really uh, coming true in my life. So, uh, yeah, it's evolved uh, since then. And, and I've uh, gradually fused that uh, progressive leftism with, um, with world federalism. Uh, so I became a world federalist pretty early on. I did a bunch of travel um, uh, after high school, and so that um, opened me up to different cultures and stuff like that, so that I had a really um, strong uh, conviction that the world should be uh, more united. Um, and then the, that uh, idea fused with my um, socialist beliefs, uh, and now I'm a, a pretty strong advocate of, like, uh, global public goods, um, a global tax on the rich, universal labor standards, and things like that. So, yeah, we can get more into that later. Um, yeah, sure. 
I'm sure it'll be something we expound upon in further episodes. Um, so for my background, I graduated, I'm 20. I graduated high school two years ago. Uh, and then I was thrust into the labor market. Um, I worked, uh, in the educational field as a teacher's assistant and a professional working with special needs students. Um, and I've also worked as a union organizer and was the shop steward My at the school. What initially brought me, it, so growing up in Oklahoma, an incredibly conserved state, I, w- I did not start out a progressive, much less a Democrat. But those were, I remember had just the optics, his campaign really brought me out of conservative uh, background, kind of made me a social pariah for, but as we, the 2016 election, this is cliche to say in left-wing spaces, right? But the 2016 uh, election left a strong mark on uh, my ideas, influenced Bernie Sanders. So I disagree with him on quite a few issues. He, you know, as everyone says, he brought socialism, he made socialism in vogue, right? Uh, so that was very important for me. Then senior year of high school, my teachers decided to go on a wildcat strike and there's no fervent uh there's no better education in class struggle than when your teachers say you know what screw the state and screw the unions uh, because oklahoma is a right to work state and uh the teachers unions cannot legally strike they have to go to forceful mediation and if union officials call for a strike, they'll lose their collective bargaining status. So there's institutional factors. But anyways, so wow, the teachers went out against both um, and won a few concessions, not enough, caved in about two weeks. But that was, you know, getting on the picket line, first picket line I've ever been in, was a very powerful experience, particularly when uh, even in a conservative state like Oklahoma, I didn't run into a single person who didn't support the teacher strike. So that was a very radicalizing experience, uh, particularly when our governor at the time compared teachers to uh, 16-year-old high school students who, when their parents give them their first car, they complain about it. Um, And just seeing the way our state just tried to crack down on the strike was very interesting. Um, What brought me so... As one becomes militarized socialist politics, internationalism plays a huge part in our politics. Um, no self-respecting socialist really goes rah-rah for war, post the Iraq war and all other American interventions. While reading about the history of international within the United States, I became a little disillusioned. I felt like there was more that we can do to establish an internationalist politic uh, than just merely opposing a war or, or engaging in solidarity strikes, as important as they are. I felt like we needed a concrete demand to really bring about a world, and that's when I found world federalism. And, it, you know, I think, I hope we can bring the world federalist ideas more broadly into the socialist movement, uh, even though I can already see some skepticism of world federalism as perhaps liberal internationalism or bourgeois internationalism, 
I think, as demand, pretty great. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk more about that. Yeah. All right. So, moving on to the news. Ethiopian police arrest a Reuters cameraman. A Reuters cameraman, Kamara Gamechu, was arrested in the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa on Thursday and will be kept in custody for at least two weeks, his family said. And the New York-based uh, Committee to Protect Journalism, or Journalists, or the CPJ, said his detention was the latest example of how press freedom is fast eroding under the Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed after a short-lived hope of reform. When CPJ carried out its annual census of jailed journalists on December 1st, there were at least seven journalists in custody in Ethiopia for their work. CPJ said in a statement on, fr- on Monday, five of those arrests took place after the Tigray fighting broke out on November 4th. So yeah. that's the like, ethnic violence north. Right. So some background on that. Uh, the party in control of the Tigray region was the former ruling or one of the former ruling parties of Ethiopia under its dictatorship uh, or, auto, or autocratic regime, I should say. And uh, they, were, they, became, they came in a conflict with the current government under Min, uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. Uh, and, sorry, and they um, unfortunately have slipped into war at the moment. And what's really disheartening about this is uh, Abiy Ahmed, like the, uh, this blurb said, is a reformer carried out um, but as this war broke out he's clamped down on and say Ethiopian media had uh, outfits like Reuters and international uh, news outlets for their quote unquote biased coverage of the conflict uh, and so it's quite worrying hope as to normal remains to be seen yeah, there's a lot of others. I, I think in these articles, some others, but did you north of Ethiopia? Mm-hmm. Also, uh, the soldiers into northern Ethiopia. And I know that in that country, a pretty large U.S. military base. Um, and then there's also the conflict with the with the dam uh, that they're building, the great Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. So, I mean, I know that's a separate, separate issue, but uh, I don't know. I really hope that this conflict doesn't internationalize as much as other... Uh, Right, civil wars have in the past. Yeah, I I do think it's a regional conflict. Um, I I do think it'll stop there unless uh, Defar is attacked. I doubt that would ever happen. Um, mm. But yeah, I I do hope that potential interventions from some neighboring countries could help put a stop to this. But again, I remain doubtful. Um, it, it's a very sad situation. Uh, I mm. think whenever a country uh, slides into an internal conflict like this, and yeah, it's particularly when I do feel sympathetic to the Ethiopian government in this case, I, I definitely do not support the cracking down on the journalists and on democratic norms within the country, but it's a real shame. So to the next story... <clears throat> Thousands of opponents of Nepal's Prime Minister K.P. Sharma Ali marched through the streets at Kathmandu on Tuesday, urging him to reverse his decision to dissolve parliament and call for early elections. The protesters who say his decision on December 20th was unconstitutional rallied outside his office despite 
coronavirus curbs on gatherings. So the Prime Minister of Nepal, uh, citing fractious politics, um, my words, not his, decided to call for early elections. Uh, it's uh, That is a norm in many other countries, but that is up for debate on whether or not it's even within his powers to do so. Um, yeah. The Prime Minister, uh, K.P. Sharma, is a member of the Communist Party of Nepal, which is one of the various political parties within Nepal. And what's been interesting is with these protests, uh, it doesn't seem to be just like a right wing or liberal response. Like a lot of the protesters are waving hammer and sickle flag along with the national flag in Nepal. So it's a very confusing scene. Yeah, so they're they're mostly saying that it's unconstitutional. They just don't. It's the question over whether or not he had the power to do that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. And Nepal has a very interesting uh, history, particularly um, with its communist movement. Uh, you know, being so close to China, obviously the party is going to have an influence. Uh, the former U.S. spy, uh, sorry, so a former uh, U.S. spy, Jonathan Pollard. Uh, arrives in Israel, according to an Israeli newspaper. Uh, the former U.S. Navy analyst who served 30 years in prison for spying for Israel moved there on Wednesday and welcomed a prayer of thanks and was welcomed with a prayer of thanksgiving by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, wow. Attention. Oh, there you, you were. Uh, you cut out. You have to start. Uh, uh... Start with uh, Jonathan Pollard has been a point of contention. Okay. Jonathan Pollard has been a point of contention between Israel and the United States for since the 80s when he was arrested. So Jonathan Pollard is a an American citizen of Jewish descent who uh, engaged spycraft, I guess, for the state of Israel. And after his arrest, uh, Israel has for a long time demanded his release and... Uh, wanting him to uh, move to Israel. Uh, Mr. Pollard uh, was released on bail five years ago, and with bail, he could not uh, leave the country. And so the what's seen in like a last goodwill act from uh, President Trump for Israel in this situation was the U.S. government decided not to re-up his bail. Uh, and so I won... For me, what's going to be interesting is to see how this plays out uh, in the upcoming Israeli elections. Uh, this is definitely a diplomatic coup among many uh, for Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, but he is, in this upcoming election, facing uh, a strong competitor from the right uh, in Gideon Sayar. I hope I pronounced his last name correctly, uh, who may unseat uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, that remains to be seen. Uh, but from polling, he does seem to be peeling away quite a, a bit of support from Likud, and he has promised not to form a coalition government with Likud under oh, wow. uh, Netanyahu. Um, so I think, in my opinion at least, uh, the odds of Benjamin Netanyahu being <laughs> getting out of office is the highest that I remember. Uh, and... The problem is, is if his replacement is Gideon Sayar, uh, he's no better on the Palestinian question. Uh, he's for expanding into the occupied territories. 
and it's a real shame. I wish there was a left alternative, but Israel is a pretty right-wing country, same as the United States, and if not more so. And right, currently, the left is fractured. There's been internal dissension between in the Arab joint list, uh, which is the joint list of the Arab parties in the Israeli Knesset. Uh, so one of the main backers of that is the Israeli Communist Party. and But it's also a coalition between left-wing parties like that and right-wing uh, religious parties, uh, Muslim uh, religious parties. And so part of the problem is a is on social issues, uh, the religious parties have more in common with Likud and the United Torah Party, uh, and they also uh, blocked the attempt to uh, launch an investigation into uh, Bibi Netanyahu a month ago or so. And so there's been infighting within the joint list, and then the, the Jewish left in Israel is still as chaotic as ever been, um, there was interesting news about Moretz uh, considering becoming a Arab, uh, Israel, like Arab uh, Jewish uh, joint party. That kind of fell through. Party leaders didn't like that, mm -hmm. and they have some justifications for it about it not paying off. It would be nice to see a Palestinian uh, and Israeli, uh, and there's been infighting with Benny Gantz and the rest of the center. Uh, so. Israeli politics extremely divided as ever. Uh, maybe it'll pay off. Yeah, it's really interesting with this spy being welcomed, uh, the national hero, and and also with that. Um, I know Trump and Netanyahu uh, like worked together on some like settlements that had like Trump's name on them. Uh, so it's a really interesting relationship, and I just wonder if if Netanyahu has been um, warming up to the U.S. Uh, in order to appeal to some of those more right-wing voters in in Israel to take away from his from the right-wing opposition, sort of like what mm. Macron is doing in France, <laughs> which we'll definitely get into yeah. towards yeah, the end yeah. of this uh, podcast. I have lots of thoughts. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, so the Trump Heights, uh, mm -hmm. I believe, is in the Golan Heights, which was uh, which was won and taken over in the uh, yes in the Six Day War. Um, in which from Syria um, and the reason it was taken is because it is a strategic heights as in the name um, mm. that overlooks mu much of Israel and it was a big fear of the Israelis that Syria would park artillery and missiles and stuff on those heights it would just whenever be able to fire into Israel and so that was one of the big strategic wins for Israel in the six day war uh, but yeah, um, you know, Bibi Netanyahu is an incredibly right-wing figure, and you know, it's not just like Trump he's been cozying up to. He's cozied up to uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary, mm. who is just a fascist, in my opinion, uh, and horribly anti-Semitic at that, as is a lot of the far right in mm. Europe. So, you know, they're you know, Bibi Netanyahu was incredibly uh, against the Obama regime, particularly in its negotiations with Iran. And so I do believe we'll see higher levels of cooperation between Israel and the United States whenever there is 
a Republican president because over the last few years, uh, some of the most outspoken supporters of the state of Israel have no longer been American Jews, but uh, Christian evangelicals who are Zionist for pretty anti-Semitic reasons themselves. <laughs> Believing the creation of the state of Israel figures into the end times, which is pretty offensive. Uh, but so this coalition between uh, Netanyahu and international anti-Semitic figures is quite interesting. And I think a lot more can be said on that. Uh, but also related, Israel-Palestine situation is in Gaza. Uh, an array of Palestinian militant groups launched rockets into the Mediterranean Sea off the Gaza Strip on Tuesday at the start of what they called their first ever joint exercise, uh, which Israeli media described as a show of force organized by Iran. Eight rockets streaked through a cloudless sky in Gaza towards the Mediterranean after Abu Hamza, spokesman, spokesman for Islamic, I think I got that name wrong, but so a spokesman for Islamic Jihad delivered a speech launching the drill. Uh, tensions between Iran and Israel have arisen since the November 27th assassination of top Iranian nuclear scientist uh, Mohsin Fahrzadeh. Um, I apologize for all of our listeners for that one. So, you know, it's quite interesting. Uh, the opposite side of the Israel-Palestine issue, you know, Hamas and especially Islamic Jihad are not particularly uh, progressive elements in the region. And they are both heavily backed by Iran. And so, you know, it's hard at times to be incredibly supportive of like just all segments of the Palestinian uh, movement when Islamic Jihad is in the picture. I do think it's quite interesting that these uh, groups are launching a joint exercise. Um, usually there is some amount of squabbling between them. And so I wonder how much... I do think it's right to draw connections to the assassination of an Iranian nuclear scientist, particularly when Iran does fund quite a few of these groups. But I do wonder if this united front, at least in Gaza, um, maybe due to the fact many Arab countries are beginning normalization processes uh, with uh, Israel. And I, I, you know, for me, I do fear uh, that without the backing of uh, most Arab states, um, whether or not some groups in uh, the region might completely give up the diplomatic option and start pointing I mean they're constantly shooting missiles into Israel it's not as if this has ever stopped but when they're the biggest leverage in the uh, diplomatic sphere it's gone I fear it's going to end to another war yeah, and I, I, I don't see Israel s just sitting back if they see uh, these groups coordinating in such a manner and yeah, it uh, sort of lays the groundwork all these normalization with their arab neighbors you know it lays the groundwork for if if the palestinians do um i don't know increase attacks then i don't know then israel can just easily say that you know they this is a small faction not backed by any other country you know when before you know the six-day war it was like all the arab countries working together and now that's, that's so whole. um the 48 war so the war of independence and the Yom Kippur War, which happened in 73, were uh, 
attacks on Israel. The Six Day War was when Israel preempt, quote unquote, preemptively oh, the attacked Sinai Peninsula. Yes, and they took the Sinai and the Golan Heights. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And but yeah, I, so we saw in the last uh, in the Intifadas, you know, military invasion by their neighbors wasn't exactly an option. Um, but uh, you know, the one of the diplomatic strengths uh, the movement for like justice in uh, Israel and Palestine was that uh, Arab countries as a bloc uh, decided not to recognize Israel until there was an independent Palestinian state um, mm. and although there's claims that that is still the case uh, it is a decisive break in the solidarity between Palestinians and other ends. Again, like all this, we'll have to watch how it plays out. Um, but I share your your pessimism. I don't. I don't really think that that's going to be bode well for the Palestinians. I think they're going to probably. Yeah. They, I mean, they have no more like um, state support from their neighbors, or, or they have some, but it's going away. So it's right. Um, yeah. and particularly, you know, if it was one country, you know, like uh, for example, Sudan uh, and Egypt, wrecking have recognized Israel before and they broke with it. And, you know, particularly Egypt recognizing uh, Israel was a mm. blow uh, to Palestinian uh, efforts since Egypt had been historically the leader of the Arab countries in waging war on Israel. Um, it's uh, as when it was just one or two nations leaving the block, it was a manageable crisis, but it's been country it's like a domino effect but mm -hmm. you know one that actually existed uh mm -hmm. where is one country normalizes as which is a you know puts us in a very interesting situation right as world federalists we support greater international cooperation uh between countries uh but also as someone who is sympathetic uh to a creation of a palestinian state uh based on pre-1967 borders you know it is a blow to that project so it's a very complicated as always with israel and palestine it's a complicated situation um mm. and i have very mixed feelings about this and particularly this again i wonder how this is going to play into the upcoming israeli elections it's no secret that right-wing uh parties always benefit uh from fears of war um or continued war and it's so there's this issue um and then it's also normalization has been a huge victory um yeah. he's claimed for years now that we don't need recognition to have diplomacy uh with our neighbors uh and this was challenged by a lot a lot of his and he has been proven right they can't have normalization without recognition and without the resolution of the Palestinian problem. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think with this, you know, particularly in how this is going to play in Israeli media, I can only see this bolstering the right again. Yeah. I can do the yeah, the next so, one. I mean, since I chose it and I Yeah, can... you picked this one. So Yeah. Okay. Um so this is in the United States uh and pretty recent this is like yesterday. Uh Mitch McConnell uh, blocked the Democrats' attempt to quickly approve $2,000 uh, stimulus checks uh, amid pressure on the Republicans to act. 
Uh, McConnell started the process for moving uh, two votes on two bills later in the week. Uh, one would be the House passed bill for approving $2,000 stimulus checks. The second uh, bill would combine the $2,000 check, $2, checks with the establishment of a commission to study election fraud and a repeal of liability protections for technology companies and other firms. Uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer called it a blatant attempt to deprive American $2,000 survival check. So the reason that this has been linked together with the uh, study of election fraud and the liability protections for tech companies was because Trump linked it together. He said that these three things should be one issue, uh, which is really a, a clever way to get his election fraud um, propaganda in it, like connected to $2,000 checks. Um, that was pretty smart. And Mitch McConnell basically carried that torch forward into the Senate. And he, he also argued that uh, the Senate will consider these three issues together. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's a, um, you know, Mitch McConnell is a seriously effective uh, obstructionist, uh, which, you know, he proved in the last year of the Obama administration, and he's proving again now. Uh, I think strategically for the Republicans, brilliant, um, unless uh, some of the Republicans break rank to just force an up and up to down vote it's pretty smart because the democrat democrats are not going to vote for it but the republicans can right and then they get to mm. come away saying we wanted to give you two thousand dollars but the democrats wouldn't play ball uh mm. it's brilliant right mm. particularly since the republicans don't want this to pass uh mm -hmm. they get a win-win they get to be seen as supportive of this by their supporters while not giving up money it's yeah that would be a smart way to play it. I mean, they keep talking about uh, a lot of the pieces, especially when it comes to Georgia, because they're having the runoff election right now. A lot of the, the the articles about this always talk about how difficult it is for the Republican Party to, like, navigate this $2,000 check thing because they've traditionally been, like, fiscally conservative. Mm -hmm. um, but now, because of the virus, they have to talk about spending money and, and supporting the, like, massive amounts of unemployment and things like that. And I just don't know. I, I got really thrown off by how all the articles are talking about how difficult it is for the Republicans. And I, I don't know. I just thought that was a really interesting angle for a lot of the media to take on that. Yeah. Um, it's not I, about the Republican Party right now. Right. I don't think the Republican Party has ever been intellectually coherent. Uh, you know, it's, you know, it's a much more shrewd machine. Uh, it. It does have these principles that it loosely uh, follows until it's in power. Uh, and I think particularly as the Republicans are leaving, they they don't want to lose this battle cry. You know, like they slammed Obama all the time for fiscal responsibility. They ignore it, you know, when they want to do it for the rich. If they can navigate, you know, they're going to be able to it bite every dollar he tries to uh, mm -hmm. he tries to pull us out of this session that we are now in and this pandemic um yeah i think this is just them going back to the the standard uh republican playbook when they're out of power um mm -hmm. you know i think for, it has been a weird stance for the media to take uh, particularly when i hope they realize that labeling the Republican Party as hypocrites isn't effective. Um, you know, uh, 
the latest Supreme Court battle, uh, it, you know, they pretty firmly uh, in 2016 said we will not elect a, we will not appoint a Supreme Court justice uh, during an election year. And, well, mm-hmm. they just, they did it this yeah. time, right? And, yeah, in like three weeks. It's fucking yeah. crazy. And the, you know, the liberal media was like, hypocrites, you know, you know, Mitch McConnell's a liar, things like this. But it's never been about those principles. It was mm. always, a, we want the Supreme Court. We'll do anything in our power to get it. Uh, mm. Which, you know, certainly does erode diplom- like uh, democratic norms. I hope, as Democrats see this, that they'll learn their lesson and learn, okay, we actually have to fight back when Republicans break the rules. But yeah. with this particular situation, um, it'll be interesting to see if any Republicans break ranks. Um, they've been pretty lockstep with President Trump in the last four years, except for a few, particularly like Mitt Romney. But, um, you know, if any of them see a chance to maybe unseat Trump uh, and McConnell as the leaders of the Republican Party, this would be an opportunity to um, but who knows? Yeah, I mean, I just know that I need a fucking two thousand dollar check, and I'm tired of this. Right? <laughs> like I'm tired of this debate about, and then and then how they're trying to be fiscally conservative again, even though there's been no talk of that for the last four years. It's just been like fascism 101. Yeah. And now now they're going back to oh yeah, we don't want to spend so much money and da, 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 da. and it's like where where, where the when we started building a wall. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. Or get or or with the first stimulus when they just bankrolled like the cruise lines and the the, the Kushner companies got all this money and all this you know it's like billions of dollars just in blank checks to massive corporations. And then when it comes to the actual working people on the ground, they it's a debate over you know six hundred bucks. You know it's ridiculous. It's honestly ridiculous compared to the other. Western or, or developed countries, how, what I don't know. It's it's honestly it's criminal how little they actually give a shit about the American yeah. public. Well, six hundred dollars. Like I live in Oklahoma, we have a credibly low standard of living. Like low, uh, oh, what's the word I should use for this? Standard, yeah, standard of living. Right. Uh, everything is extremely cheap here. Housing, if you're renting like a two bedroom apartment and stuff. Compared to like other cities, Tulsa is six hundred dollars. Will maybe pay rent for a one-bedroom apartment, and that's about mm-hmm. it. Uh, like you're living in a slum house if you're getting it under six hundred dollars. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, yes, that any money helps, right? But it's definitely not enough. Uh, you know, I went through the twelve hundred dollars pretty quick, just paying for bills. You know, it's mm-hmm. and you know it. Particularly when a lot of people didn't even get the money. <laughs> it's like, yeah, maybe we should. It's, it's crazy that they're passing $600 like seven months after they passed 1200 Like we needed, a lot of people needed money five months ago, three months ago, you know, every month, right? Uh, evictions are going to get, are getting out of hand. Um, and this money was desperately needed, but they're more concerned with, bailing out the cruise lines, an industry which would be a net positive if it died. Um, sure, certain cities, eco- uh, economies 
would uh, take a very huge hit. Uh, but in terms of the environmental impact, the public health issues, and the labor rights of their employees, labor rights, really on most issues that I care about, it would be a net positive if uh, the cruise lines went out of business. Instead, mm. we're keeping them afloat when we should sink it. Um, mm. It's nice just fun. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's very frustrating. You know, I think a lot of people on the left had incredible hopes at the beginning of this pandemic of, hey, maybe America will think, oh, we're going through this p- pandemic. Maybe social democracy might be a good idea, which I don't think that's panned out at all. Um, if anything, I think our country has slipped farther and farther into the right, into the delusional right at that. Um mm. To, it's just a shame. Uh, I, you know, I think there was a legitimate opportunity there uh, in the beginning. I don't blame Bernie Sanders for dropping out of the primary. He was going to lose. But I do think having a presidential candidate hammering home the things we need during a pandemic could have helped. Um, but yeah. I, 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 I do think a a chance was missed to use the bully pulpit of a presidential. But uh, I I did come into this pandemic thinking maybe people will realize we need health care. <laughs> maybe people will realize, hey, a social safety net is nice mm. to have. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's I don't know how it is in Oklahoma, but in, but in Seattle, it's like the, the homelessness uh, population or the, the population of people experiencing homelessness is I don't know, skyrocketed. And in all the city parks, there's like 10 cities. And my family is just asking all the time, like, how is this happening? Why is this happening? And I mean, it's clearly related to the pandemic and the evictions and the unemployment and um, and then the lack of a social safety net. So, I mean, you just don't see the same issues occurring in other countries, which are also experiencing the pandemic. And yet, because of a social safety net and uh, protections on employment and guaranteed rights to housing and things like that, um, you just don't have all these people living in the streets or in city parks through the winter. Uh, I mean, it's just it's just it's uh, I mean, that's also just like incredible to see. I mean, in these parks that I grew up walking around and it was like. And, and and my dad brought up a good point that it's such a lose lose, you know, because people do like their their parks, you know, the people who live near them want their parks, and the people who are living in those parks now need a house. So I mean, it's just a complete lose lose for everybody <laughs> involved. Um, and it's, it can be easily solved with just a guaranteed right to housing and like a building affordable housing and more social safety net, more yep. welfare programs, and funding public housing. You know, it's. Mm. You know, the projects only fail when you stop paying for them, you mm. know, it, it, particularly in such a, you know, a city like a very progressive reputation. Yeah, it's been hitting blue states, red states, everything in between. You know, it's trying to think of how I should say this. It's just a major we're living in a major clusterfuck of we don't have a real alternative other than, OK, maybe we should embrace fascism. You know, it's how long before. You know, the NIMBY types uh, in Seattle are advocating just kicking the homeless out of the streets and putting them into a detention center. Or, yeah, they're undesirable. Or kicking them out of the just let's bust them out of the city. We don't want them here like San Francisco and other cities mm. have done for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, it's I think you can judge a society by the way they treat the people without a voice, and without power. Um, 
and the way we've j- let just homeless people uh, suffer during this pandemic is a major indictment of the American government and the American society as a whole. Uh, it's just downright criminal to yeah. leave people out in the open, particularly as we're in, in winter now. Uh, during a pandemic, you know, that is, pandi- <laughs> you know, a pandemic, you know, which is flu-like, right? You know, it's worse off in the winter months. But yeah, mm. we're, we're just going to not pass a nationwide moratorium on rent. Uh, we're not going to, we're just going to let landlords uh, evict uh, people once the initial moratoriums ran out. Yeah, or even the cops to do it. I mean, you have sheriffs going around evicting people in the middle of a pandemic. And then at the, what really grind, what really bothers me the most is that, I mean, Seattle has experienced immense economic growth because of uh, Amazon in the last like 10 years. So, I mean, for a while, it was like the fastest growing city. You know, we had like 20,000 people a month moving to the to Seattle, just basically only to work for Amazon. And they built up a whole district. They have like multiple skyscrapers and a whole neighborhood of their workers and their offices. And uh, and they're like, the, what were they? The you know one of the richest countries or richest uh, companies. And they failed to pay any taxes. They fought a head tax in Seattle. They the Seattle City Council passed a tax uh, per employee, like one hundred and fifty dollars per employee of big companies and they just totally fought that and got it overturned in like two weeks. And yeah. And so, I mean, the solution is really easy when you see like this massive company making a shit ton of money and Jeff Bezos net wealth, like expanding immensely during the pandemic. And then at the same time, the homelessness crisis is getting way out of hand and, and, and it should never existed in the first place. And now it's just crazy I mean, it's a, the solution to me is just super obvious that we should be taxing Jeff Bezos and giving it to the people living in the park. Absolutely. Um, yeah. uh, one of the positive developments that's come out during the last few months has been the movement to make Amazon pay. Uh, mm. You know, it's been sponsored by the Progressive International and a lot of uh, community organizations. That I really do hope it takes off. Um, mm-hmm. Because internationally, we need to hold Amazon and corporations like it, and particularly tech corporations, responsible for the flagrant uh, labor crimes they commit. Tax evasion. Tax evasion. It's huge. Like, you know, so Tulsa was uh, one of the cities that was trying to get the second uh, Amazon headquarters. Mm-hmm. And we've been. Oh man, we just bent over and we wanted to get reamed by Amazon just to have the opportunity to have uh, Amazon here, and it was it was disgraceful. And to think a company wields that much power that if they just float the idea of opening an office somewhere, that governments will compete with each other in that manner to just keep okay, we'll we'll give you this much money to move here, and then. Oh, another city offers more, so we have to keep raising. It's, it's extortion. Yeah, it's a race to the bottom. I mean, it's a, they just like caused a little race to the bottom amongst, amongst like the local governments in the U.S. It was it was incredible. And then only to to just choose what did they do? Like New York and D.C. or yep. like the, you know, it's like mm-hmm. the largest the cities everyone, area. <laughs> the cities everyone knew was going to get it. Um, yeah, but they made us. You know, you know, they humored us for that long. 
uh, they did build a warehouse out here, and mm. they have a lot of these uh, Amazon uh, vans delivered in our mail now. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, particularly, you know, we're not hearing a lot coming out of us, but uh, Oklahoma, like I said before, is a right-to-work state, and we have very bad labor laws here. We're just ripe for the picking. This point, as much as it was interesting to see Alabama Amazon workers go on strike and trying to unionize, I hope that pans out. Um, yeah. But, I, you know, I, it's, it's really tough. Yeah. You know, saw in the news a few weeks ago, Amazon just hired the Pinkertons to spy on. No way. Wow. Yeah, to spy on uh, their workers in Europe. You know, Europe in several countries does have unionized uh Amazon facilities and lucky them. Uh, but yeah, they hired the literal Pinkertons to mm. uh, investigate and to infiltrate uh, Amazon networks. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's insane. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, that's it, traditional. I mean, that's that's eight. That's like a hundred years old at this point. That's so on the nose. Mm-hmm. It's like, did the PR department get word of this first? Like, <laughs> there's so many private contractors to hire but like to hire the one responsible for like hundreds of murdered union activists is a bit much <laughs> yeah, yeah it's a bit it really much. sends a message i mean and that's what they do I, I, there was a, a like a training video that was released uh online yeah that, that was like telling them telling employees incoming employees like about unions and how they're terrible and they stifle innovation and amazon treats you the best anyway and and uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's really crazy how that. I don't know. I wish that they there was that was illegal that they could even say that stuff to in, incoming employees. I, I just I think it's really crazy that they get, they're allowed to propagandize and then even hire companies like that. Um, I don't know. Yeah, you bring up Europe and there are just so many more labor rights. Um, like in Germany, every company after a certain size has to have like a council, like an employee council. Um, that does have like so the employees vote for this council and uh, the members of the council do have like power um, akin to the board of directors. Um, So, I mean, it's just and that's just like a standard law. So after like 100 employees, a company needs an employee council and it functions more or less like a union. Uh, And then there's also unions on top of that. Um, so, I mean, it's just, it's incredible that they have, I don't know, there's just so many better ways to do labor and, and to see American companies allowed to just, I don't know, negate all of that. Um, yeah. Is well, incredible. it's, you know, in Germany, you had, at least before the neoliberal turn, you had the SPDA and you had actual workers parties to mm. advocate for those policies and to fight for them. The United States just ne- has never had that. The closest mm-hmm. we had was the Socialist Party of America at the turn of the last century, uh, mm-hmm. who were crushed during the First World War. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, apart from the New Deal and the historic, you know, labor uh, backing of uh, the New Deal Democrats, that's the closest we've ever had to a working class politics in the United mm-hmm. States. And mm-hmm. it was just eviscerated in the 50s and 60s Uh, and it's i don't know how we're going to claw back to just the bare minimum not even social democracy just hey maybe people should be allowed to (laughs) organize union organize and maybe (laughs) and you know maybe 
striking is a right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, FDR. Yeah, it's, I mean, freedom of speech. The fact that they were able to like stop, you know, some states were able to hinder the right of um, of workers to organize is incredible. I mean, it's in the First Amendment assembly and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's so like, it's, here in Oklahoma, it was in the late nineties that Oklahoma passed right to work and union membership just rapidly declined afterwards um so part of our right to work laws uh is no longer uh when you join a union workplace you are no longer automatically a member of the union um Mm. so it's so even the workplaces that have unions like uh, the public schools there's no the only way they can try to encourage members people to join and pay dues is to offer benefits like hey you can go to this community college online for free and these kinds of benefits uh which are great and you know i helped convince some of my coworkers to join the union to get those benefits uh Mm. but without like when the union's neutered to the point where it can't even strike and to show like hey we're actually fighting for you Mm -hmm. like there's very little they can do um, mm-hmm. And so it was to the point where, so at Tulsa Public Schools, the unions uh, are divided to the teachers union and then, uh, which has its own local uh, union name. And then you have mm-hmm. the American Federation of Teachers, which ironically doesn't represent the teachers. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it, it has all the support staff, which included me. And it got mm-hmm. so bad that when I uh, started working at the school I worked at, um, and I, I asked the principal who the union rep was. She said, I didn't know you guys had a union. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and wow. so I had to, you know, start organizing our union there. And it's incredibly difficult. You know, um, at least when you don't have a union and you start the union, people don't have, uh, well, people do have misconceptions about unions, negative stereotypes, right? But they don't have the immediate thing of, this organization isn't doing anything for me. Mm. Um, and it's hard to get people excited about a completely neutered organization. Yeah. Uh, so, like, we got shafted uh, in negotiations last year. Uh, and TPS is going through a budget crisis through negligence. Uh, and so we got completely shafted on that. Uh, and there was just rumblings with in the uh, union of we need to walk out. Uh, You know, the union can't even, like, offer a space for these people to talk about that. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, if they, if the state thinks the union's involved, they'll lose their collective uh, bargaining right. So it's it's just... I mean, it's just backwards. I mean, what the, that's their whole point. I don't know. Yeah, striking is like the, the that's like the only tool that the union really has. Yeah. So, I mean, to take that away, yeah, it does neuter them and make them ineffective. And then, yeah, people aren't even interested. Particularly when the mediation is with the state. Mm. Like, the state rarely, if ever, has sided with labor <laughs> over capital. Mm. It, particularly a state like Oklahoma. Mm. You know, it's... You know, we have a Republican supermajority in our state. It's we are one of the most uh, conservative states and we are consistently second to last when it comes to public education and most uh, uh, social safety net programs. You know, we try to just have a uh, 
ballot initiative just to get Medicare uh, Medicare expansions, uh, which you know the government has been off federal government has been offering for years, and it like it lost almost six by almost sixty percent of the vote. Yeah, it's very hard. Pretty red down there. <laughs> yeah, I I also think it's crazy that they the this whole concept of a right to work. Uh, I I knew about I write about that a lot, you know, a while ago. And then the other one is a right to it's right to work and so right and to work really means right to get fired. Yeah, yeah, and they they co opted that term because originally uh, a right to work, like I was just listening to the to the Revolutions podcast, and that came up in like in France and. In 1848, they were talking about how, like, the, the proto-socialists sort of uh, wanted a right to work, as in, like, guaranteed jobs. Yeah. Um, and the, so it's so interesting how that's been co-opted to mean, to yeah, mean this. It, gu- guaranteed jobs has been a cornerstone of the socialist movement since uh, 1848 and before. You know, it's, mm. you know, this uh, reserve, reserve army of labor really does hold back potential uh, re- uh reforms uh or uh just you know it's hard to fight the bosses when they can just fire you and bring in scabs <laughs> you know mm-hmm. uh it's it strangles the workers movement and that's why you know there's been attempts to organize the unemployed but you know and the iww immediately had some success at the beginning of that you know it's very little could be done uh with that it's uh, <laughs> it's just a clusterfuck there's yeah so moving on to the next story uh <laughs> this was a little an, sidetracked on that one. we did <laughs> i i bet we'll be doing that quite often uh so yeah. this was another one of your stories uh did, oh yeah yeah i can um brexit ends uh britain's right to live and work in the eu on january 1st britain embarks on its new more distant relationship with the eu after nearly five Decades of closer economic, cultural, and social integration. Uh, the change for Britain's economy and its people is the most dramatic since World War II, certainly more so than when the country joined what was then the European Economic Community in 1970. So um, this article yeah. goes on to explain the different ways this will affect, uh, uh, you know, uh, people who live in Britain uh, on being able to work in the EU uh, just to visit, you know, so part of that was discussing. So a lot of pensioners uh, have a second home in Spain, uh, which mm. they spend a third of their time. Well, now no longer going to be. The um, there's a cap. So there is. So there's a cap on how many days someone from the UK can visit. One second. OK, so this is when immigrant main V90 is going to ex- you there. Hello, can you hear me? Um, yes, you're muted. I am. There you go. I okay. Hear you. <laughs> okay. Now it says ready, and you can hear me. Okay. All right. Yeah. I. Uh, shit. Sorry. I. Yeah. My. Anyway. Um. So I was. I was just gonna say that the with this British uh, with Brexit, basically now they're now the students are also out of the Erasmus student exchange program, which is uh, really popular. And originally Boris Johnson. Um, said that that wouldn't be affected um and now it's just completely canceled and it's uh one of the biggest things that's actually um created like the social cultural aspect of of european integration is that the the students can just travel to any country and study anywhere 
Um, they standardized education across European countries. So a lot of countries that didn't even have like a bachelor's or master's system. Now that they all do have the same like education um, degrees and standards and things like that. And so um, this allowed the Erasmus program to be so successful. And anyway, yeah, so that, I think that was, uh, um, yeah, my partner did that a bunch. Like in Italy, she traveled to there a couple times. And uh, yeah, I don't know, I, with the Erasmus program, um, and uh, I feel really sad about that because uh, that was one of the coolest parts of the EU um, for the people. Um, yeah. yeah, it's in typical Tory fashion. They just claimed, we'll keep all the popular stuff and we'll just get mm. rid of the stuff we don't like. And mm. sadly, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the EU has a vested interest in making sure the UK does not get off scot-free with this Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's a real shame it's almost as if the uk should not have done brexit Um, yeah and it's what has been particularly frustrating is that there's a kernel of truth to uh you know the opposition to the european union the european union is undemocratic and it you know and it is an agent of like neoliberalism in Europe mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. economically. Uh, I, I don't think the solution is to leave the European Union. It's to transform it, right? Mm-hmm. To make it more democratic. One of the, it has been interesting to see in the last couple of years, there are admittedly micro parties still at this, but pan European political party uh, mm-hmm. with uh, Foltz or, and also like, DM25 uh, mm-hmm. as the socialist uh, version of that pretty much. It's, mm-hmm. I hope mm-hmm. for the rest of Europe that to av- avoid to avoid similar processes like this happening again, that hopefully a pan-European political movement can occur um, because I, I don't see, and I, I think this is a broader project that, you know, world federalists should uh, engage in is creating a international political community um, mm. you know and n- not just as world federalists I think you know the world federalist movement is very broad tent you know we have socialists we have liberals we have conservatives libertarians and you're not going to fit all those people into the same political organizations outside the very near world federalist ones but mm-hmm. I do think we we should focus expanding international cooperation within our party or creating uh, parties that do that. I, I think particularly on the socialist level, there's very little excuse not to. You know, mm-hmm. for a long time, we rightfully, I do think, have said no one knows the uh, internal conditions of a country like the people who live there. And that's right, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't still just be in the same party as someone else. Yeah. Uh, I think... Um, the different internationals that has been a failure. We have remained fundamentally still divided, and I think a pan-European, a pan-American, pan-world uh, political movement and uh, would be very beneficial in combating the rise of nationalism. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the trick is just how do you create that... Um that like transnational or international uh, civic space for people to engage in. And obviously uh, the Young World Federalists and, and other organizations really focus on the online um, 
aspect of it. I, I personally believe that yeah, social networks and online tools are the way to create that space, um, especially when you have like a global pandemic. Um, but yeah, I mean, traditionally, these movements have met in congresses, uh, mostly like in Switzerland, you know, like the first and second international and and things like that. And even the World Federalist Movement uh, hosts congresses. Um, but I don't necessarily think that that's the the perfect tool um, for creating the transnational space that um, everyday people can be involved in. Right. Um, well, I yeah. think part of that problem is is that's limited to the leadership of mm -hmm. organizations. Um, mm -hmm. And sure, it, it's great for our leaders to be interconnected, to know each other. Uh, but without the base of a party uh, interacting, <laughs> like particularly within a socialist context, right? You know, we popular slogan is the working class has no country, right? And we want to foster this internationalist ethic within the working class of stop seeing our neighbors different from us. But no, they're fellow workers. Um, mm -hmm. It's quite hard to do that when you don't get to interact with mm -hmm. those neighbors, particularly when you have such similarity and you hold the same or similar political opinions that mm -hmm. Particularly in the socialist movement, we have the ideas that are supposed to bring us together, but we have no institutional way of implementing. And I think online interaction is a great way to start to build that. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, there's ways to do that, particularly along borders, uh, to have that cooperation. Uh, mm. You know, for example... It, it's harder to do that with Mexico because of restrictions uh, the United States has put on border travel. But say with Canada, you know, it's quite easy to go over to Canada and having joint with Canadians isn't that mm. difficult, particularly mm -hmm. in, the, uh, you know, and, and then in a place like Europe, it's a no brainer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you do have a broad consensus on the left of the way politics should work. And there's no reason organized together uh, particularly when so many uh in europe you know so many say germans live in france and you know there's these great there's these huge expat communities and mm -hmm. a way to engage those expat communities is by having connections to the parties they may have been their parents may have voted um yeah Oh, it really is. I mean, and then when you also see like, yeah, with Brexit, I mean, that just like flies in the face of all of that uh, international cooperation. And then I believe Corbyn originally uh, was in favor of Brexit and, yeah. and for his various economic, like, like for the reasons that you pointed out, the EU is flawed and undemocratic and neoliberal. And, and but but at the same time, yeah, I, they've completely alienated um, Europe and they've started to other, you know, increase the use of like the seeing Europeans as the other and the same thing. Go, and it works both ways. So I, I don't know the relationship. I've even heard a couple of British people say that this could uh, grow into like serious uh, uh, into a serious like adversarial relationship between the UK and the continent. And I, I think that that's that's really interesting to think about. I, I hope it doesn't. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it is definitely going that way. Um, they need to strike a better a better deal, I think, in the future, because right now the UK is all the citizens of the UK are now what, what Europe calls third country nationals, which is what I am as a as an American. Right. So they have the same rights that I do. And um, 
And I think that's really crazy because a lot of them were, when I first moved here, they were European citizens and now they all are in my boat of, yeah, of like needing to, if they want to stay in Europe, they have to marry somebody or they need to be super highly educated and get a, a really nice job so they can get the blue card. Um, yeah. So it's, it's really, it's really crazy to see. And I, I really, um, yeah, I don't know how uh, transnational uh, civic space. I, I mean, yeah, it, it needs to solve it somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you know, this European skepticism isn't just on the left. You know, it's across Europe. It's not just a British uh, phenomenon. Uh, it, and I do think, and I understand the impulse, but I think some of those politicians are operating on a outdated mode of thought. Um, it's no longer possible to separate yourself from the world economy and to try to go your own way. Uh, mm. It's not going to be successful, particularly with the control with the United States uh, and the neoliberal control uh, organizations like the World Bank and the IMF, if you want a loan, you're going to have to uh, engage in austerity politics. And the democratic control you wanted to exert over your country would just be undermined with none of the benefits you had of being in the European Union. Um, Mm. It's just, Mm. I, I don't see a way, particularly of such integrated countries, to just go with a blow um as much yeah. as like apart from the anti-semitism issue as much as as sympathetic i am to corbin's labor part when that exists uh, it's i think it was always a pipe dream and mm-hmm. i think labor should have came more forcefully uh excluding the labor left more forcefully pro-eu um uh, mm-hmm. but you know still advocating we need to change the eu uh mm-hmm. i think you know there's with Brexit, at least from the media I consumed, it was either we love the EU or we need to just get rid of it instead of a progressive alternative of the EU fucking sucks, but it's better than nothing and we need to fix it. Yeah, which is what a lot of the transnational, like what Volt and DiEM25 are arguing for. Absolutely. So, I mean, yeah, I think they just don't, those parties and that and those voices, because the limitations of the EU um, democracy uh, they just don't have a, a space to engage with. And so like those parties are really struggling. They operate mostly online yep. and um, but they do struggle to like engage people. I mean, there are a couple like diehard European nationalists, um, but uh, there's no really there's a very little European civic space. Like even in the European elections, they're basically uh, separate national elections, all voting for the same parliament, but they're completely organized by the member states. So there is no very little, there's like a very, uh, I, I wrote my, my thesis about this, actually, the lack of like a European demos and, and how it's completely negated in favor of this, uh, what they call, like they, they pluralize it. They say we're uh, the peoples of Europe versus a people of Europe. And that's the, I think, the fundamental flaw with the whole idea um, is that, and then how European integration was really, for the, for the most part, really focused on economic, the economic side of things. And now slowly the social and political side have been have been brought up and, and and included in the European integration project. But for the most part, it's just a neoliberal economic thing, uh, which is super easy to critique from yeah. all sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a shame that the integration process stalled. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's uh, the problem is, is globalization don't seem to be 
things we can just go back from. It, mm. it, it's happened, and to tr- attempt to go back would destroy the economy. It's, you know, and I do think it's, you know, Volt, it's a particular problem with Volt and DM25 is they are primarily online movement. You know, mm-hmm. both, I think, make pretty slick uh, media uh productions uh particularly dm25 does extremely well um with putting together polished materials uh but that has yet to really translate into a on the ground grassroots movement you know they've managed to get a few people to become uh be elected as meps but Mm -hmm. um you know it's without that viable grassroots organization like dm25 just becomes a vehicle for Giannis Vieira Falcas to be famous, right? Mm-hmm. We need yeah. that. Ah. And it's difficult, right? Because, you know, I remember reading, you know, DM25 was kind of met with hostility among the German left, particularly Delinka. You know, it's mm-hmm. you're moving in on our territory. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know how we get. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the left is eating itself. In Europe and and around the world, and so it's it's really hard to, to to form. Everyone talks about solidarity and all this stuff, but the, the factionalization amongst the left is really kills it. I think in the end, I mean, because the, the right, look at the unity amongst the right. I mean, they're all just like nationalists or fascists, conservatives. They all get along and they all love each other. And the left is consistently divided, and uh, I think that's the problem because you have and the EU is a point of contention amongst the left. You know, some do. There are. Um, communists and socialists in Germany who do want the dissolution of the European Union. And then when you have a progressive movement like Deem 25 coming in and saying, no, let's just make it democratic and let's inc- make a European welfare state, um, they come at they come in, uh, at odds with each other. So, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, it's, uh, you know, the disease of like nationalism is a force on the left. You know, there's mm-hmm. instances where a socialist's we support certain national movements, right? Because we view them to be progressive. Um, but you know, you know, I firmly stand with Rosa Luxemburg on this. Uh, the right, a universal right to self determination, uh, goes against our interests as socialists and as uh, people wanting a working class politics and internationalist politics. It's uh, as long as we try to cling. To these, uh, to our, to these manufactured identities uh, of you know nationality, uh, it's it's just going to further divide us. Uh, yeah. Particularly when we have in Europe, there's no need for it. In the United States, mm. there's no need uh, among most uh, uh, Americans. It, there's no need for it. I would argue that an you know. Native American or indigenous and certain groups within the United States having that national ethos does play a progressive role, but uh, it's very few. Uh, and I think we need to view it as you know, nationalism is no longer a progressive force in our societies, and it needs to be stamped out. Um, mm. You know, it had its uh, it had its place when. A lot of the world was rising up against feudal lords, you know, to create this more centralized uh, world. But now it's time to continue that centralization. We shouldn't mm. stop at imaginary lines on a map. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like how the question is like, how do you form those uh, that solidarity uh, across borders and across nations? And, uh, and, and for people to see themselves... 
Because, I mean, self-determination and autonomy aren't necessarily uh, or inherently bad things, but it, it comes, the question is, what is the self or what is the body that you're talking about? And so it's always been this, yeah, like you said, manufactured national identity. But if you think, okay, well, like in the European context, maybe it's the right of the singular and collective European people to decide their future, or in a world federalist sense, maybe it's the right of humanity itself to determine its future. And uh, so where is the self-determination for humanity and where is the right of autonomy for humanity? Um, mm -hmm. Right. It just doesn't exist. It's I, consistently divided. I think, you know, if we could separate uh, the idea of the nation from the nation state, I have no problem with it. Right. But it's when it's institution institutionalized into government, that's when it does become a violent force in our society. Um, you know, it's. Like, it's not an issue for, like, you to be proud of, like, your heritage and the national culture uh, of the place you live, right? But when it comes to, like, oh, you know, this family who came over here from Eastern Europe, they're not Germans, uh, they're not Americans, they're not, they're not British, right? It's when we make those distinctions when, you know, they have every right to live there with us. Uh, mm. And when the state uh, enforces this national culture, which changes over time, I think that's when it becomes a, a uh, reactionary force. Mm, totally. Uh, I totally. think, you know, there's been, there was writing on this, uh, you know, over 100 years ago by Otto Bauer in his book, uh, Social Democracy and the Nationalities Question. And I do think it's a worthwhile project to... Uh, create uh like you know it's freedoms of association right i choose to like associate as an american or as a person of irish descent um and you know there is uh mechanisms so where i can learn my language i can learn about my culture but that's not forced onto other people uh and it's not institutional in the state okay so uh moving on uh out of Spain, uh, recently they announced that they're going to keep a register of those who refuse the coronavirus vaccine. Uh, so people in Spain who decline the vaccine against coronavirus will be listed in a new register that will be shared with other EU nations. Um, the Spanish health minister said what will be done is a registry of those people who have been offered it and simply rejected it. Um, the vaccine would not be made compulsory. Uh, and the re the information in the register would not be made public. Um, but healthcare professionals have warned that the idea presents potential dangers. Um, the most important thing to know is how the registry will be used, said Jose Luis Cobos, uh, deputy director of the Spanish General Council of Nursing. So uh, I don't know. I think this is pretty interesting because Spain, I think this comes out of the fact that Spain... Uh, was hit so badly by the virus that they're just not taking any chances. Um, and they really want to send a strong message to the anti-vaxxers in their country that uh, yeah, while they do have the right to refuse it, uh, they're going on a list and that list will be shared with European countries. Um, right. I don't really know the point of sharing it with other EU member states. Um, I, my guess would be so uh, <laughs> they can, I don't know, maybe so they can refuse travel privileges. Or, oh yeah. yeah or um 
in case they end up in a European hospital, like another hospital in another country, they know they don't have a vaccine. Um, mm. But for me, I, I don't know. I, as much as I want to crack down on the anti-vaxxers and the, the uh, COVID truthers, I do not think this is the way go, to go about it. Um, these people are already paranoid, putting them on a mm. list. You know, it's the same with like the gun debate here. Like the biggest fear among the more conspiracy riddled sections of like the American right, a gun registry. It, it mm. just the idea of being put on a list scares people. And mm. I, I don't think more fear is what any government should be aspiring to do. Um, yeah. And frankly, in the way, you know, it's like every week or so we get a massive data breach of, mm. yeah, I, I don't know if this is something they should just make a big list of. Mm. I, it could very easily get wrong. If this list is leaked, just the public back against these people, although, like, I understand, you know, is not appropriate. No. I, yeah, I mean, I, it I takes, think, like, an adversarial position and create, it furthers the divide between yeah. the sectors of the population. Yeah, you know, I think a lot could be done to educate the populace more about vaccines you know that's not mm. you know that you know that's not a silver bullet but it's better than nothing and mm. i think you know they do say we're not going to force people to take this vaccine right but this is a coercive me- measure mm-hmm. that i do disagree with. um yeah. you know i think you know the way we treat vaccines here in the state you can't go to school if you don't have a vaccine you know putting those things in place are completely appropriate I, I mm. do chafe at the idea of being put on a list if I didn't mm. get it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the school thing uh, that was a, a recently done in, in Washington state and that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, I agree that this is, this is pretty weird, especially coming out of Spain, um, which its government is, is, I don't know, moving to the right pretty quickly, especially when it comes to like Catalonia's right to self-determination. So I I don't really know if this is good. I, there's a lot of like uh, Franco apologists and, and things like that. So I, I don't really know. Um, it's it's pretty it's pretty weird to see the, the Spanish government take such a hard line position and using such a big stick when I, I agree that I, I think with especially when you want to cross this like super conspiratorial um, conspiratorial divide uh i think it's more about yeah education or using carrots i mean all the i don't know i mean you could even just say hey if you don't want it we'll give you we'll give you money or you get like a benefit or something like i don't i think there are other more creative ways to to tackle this problem um public information campaigns i don't know i i also don't know why they made this public right to just Mm. say we're going to fabulous you know the government knows if you've had a vaccine or not. Like, that's reported, mm. right? Mm. To me, it's uh, making the registry. That's weird. For me, mm. if, you know, and, you know, I may be talking out of my ass, right? But, you know, to just create a registry without, like, strong legal limits on what can be done with that, problematic, to say the yeah. least. Yeah, um, I, yeah. A, yeah, I agree. I don't know. It's pretty... It's pretty interesting. It, I, I will be very interested to see if like other European countries follow suit. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. It would also be very weird if Spain was the only one to do this. Like, mm-hmm. to just have mm-hmm. for every European country to know which Spaniards didn't get this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I don't, I really don't see that happening in Germany. I mean, they have, as much as they love their bureaucracy, they do have a, like, in a, 
because of historical reasons, like an aversion to making lists of, of members of the population. Um, yeah, yeah. So they're more likely to, like, categorize groups as dangerous. Like, so they do that with, like, their interior ministry has, like, a bunch of, like, left-wing extremist groups on a list and, and things like that. So they do groups, but making lists of individuals is really, uh, it needs a really good reason in Germany. Um, and I'm not sure this is even one that they would that they would participate in. Um, no. So, and then, yeah. you know, some governments in the EU are certainly more right-wing than most, uh, and I don't see a lot of them going along. Like, can you imagine mm. Hungary signing up to this? I'm sure yeah. they like making lists of people, but yeah. I don't I don't know if it's going to be for COVID. Yeah, and then yeah, and then exactly who gets put on the list? So who? What if? Yeah, that, it's a really interesting thing because then you could say, oh yeah, you do get put on the list even if you took the vaccine. So you know? the the article said it's for people who explicitly refuse, right, mm. and not people who you know can't take it for medical reasons or anything like. That. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I'm just kind of just philosophically against this idea <laughs> of mm, yeah. making lists. You know, that's the most creepy thing about Santa Claus, and it's. <laughs> Other than the breaking into homes, uh, yeah. Santa's a super spreader. That's my absolutely, absolutely. Stay home, Santa. I'm waiting to see how bad everything. Oh yeah, yeah, we will. And New Year's, we gotta yeah. wait for the New Year's. Gotta wait for two weeks for that. But anyways, so moving on to our next story. Um, yeah. Um, oh yeah. So yeah. Also COVID. So another another COVID one. Uh, Russia's Russia's COVID nineteen death toll could be three times higher than reported. Uh, new data released Monday by the Russian statistics agency Rostat uh, showed that the number of deaths from all causes from January to November 2020 had risen by over 200,000 compared to the same period last year. Um, after the figures were released, Deputy Prime Minister Tatiana Golikova was quoted by Russia's Interfax agency as saying more than 81% of the increase was due to COVID-19 and cons- consequences of the disease. That means the virus-associated death toll is at least 186,000, or about three times previously reported. Uh, it would also give Russia the, the third highest COVID-19 death toll in the world. The country's official death toll reported on a cumulative daily basis by the government's Coronavirus Crisis Center stood at 55,000 on Tuesday. So it went from 55,000 to 186,000. Um, yeah, or... Yeah, no, far. it's... So, uh, there's two numbers. Is it 200,000 or 186? Okay, so uh, the total amount of deaths in the country is up 229,000 from last year, right? Oh, and now, that's the total. Uh, oh, so the yeah, deputy prime minister uh, has said... That's at least 186,000 or 80% of that, those new deaths are from mm-hmm. COVID. Um, mm-hmm. And I so see. the official total, which was about 55,000, is now 186, yeah. uh, which wow. is insane. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. Quite, quite a jump. Uh, though I'm not particularly surprised that the Russian government hasn't been completely accurate with uh, mm. its statistics uh i i wonder how many have been so off the mark uh, with these death totals Mm -hmm. you know you know there's been a lot of speculation about what the actual death uh, toll in china is Mm -hmm. um but yeah it's yeah that's crazy uh yeah you know that's that's really i I saw like this uh 
it's like Vice uh, mini documentary earlier in the year. And they were talking to like doctors in Russia and they, because of the lack of testing that they were doing, so they, they just didn't know how many cases of coronavirus they had like in their hospitals. But then, so they said like, oh, you know, we have uh, just by, by way of example, they would say like, oh, you know, we have like uh, 20 coronavirus cases here, um, but we're having a really, really strong rise of uh, pneumonia. So we only have 20 coronavirus cases, but we have like 300 people here with, with pneumonia. And, and it was like clearly obvious that all those pneumonia patients were actually coronavirus patients. And so there was this, yeah, it was really interesting. And uh, I think there was even doctors like killing themselves, like jumping out of the hospital buildings and things like that. Like, yeah. So, really- you know, Alex Jones has been on about, you know, they just label everyone who's sick as a COVID patient. And mm. <laughs> he's mm. been very big on this and like, Oh, they just go into nursing homes and they just say, you have COVID, you have COVID, you have COVID. It's, you know, this distinction of whether, you know, someone has COVID-like symptoms, whether someone has been positively tested for COVID does uh, very complicate things a lot. And, I, mm. you know, it gives people like Alex Jones, you know, he's, he's intentionally acting in bad faith. But like, you know, people who would listen to Alex Jones... It gives them reasons to doubt uh, mm-hmm. the actual statistics. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, particularly when the government's been wishy-washy on appropriate measure, you know, like mm-hmm. even Dr. Fauci in the beginning was talking about you don't need to wear a mask, you know. You know, it's hard uh, to try to combat a virus if you can't trust the government's in charge of doing it. Yeah, it's really crazy. And And, and around the same time, I think I also saw some other stories about uh, China's death toll. Some some people are trying to use. I don't know how much of this is just like Western propaganda or not, but right. they're trying to use like uh, satellite images and things like that of like morgues and 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 phone traffic and number of like WeChat users in certain areas and things like that. So they're using all these like other metrics to try to quantify how many people like disappeared or, or died because of the virus. Stop using WeChat. So that's maybe someone who died. Anyway, so it's it's really interesting. Um, I don't know. It's uh, these two countries, the authorita- authoritarian regimes. And then they're not alone. There's just they're the biggest ones. Sure. But I'm pretty sure all the other uh, autocracies around the world are also lying about how many yeah. deaths they have. Uh, you don't want to take that PR hit, uh, mm-hmm. especially in Russia's case, when that puts you at the third uh, mm-hmm. highest death toll. You know, mm-hmm. you know, it, it does lose you a certain amount of credibility. Uh yeah, totally. Yeah. Especially as you can point to democracies like like Europe and and the U.S., which are suffering immensely, and just say, well, yeah, look, that's the, that's the failure of their system, and and that's more or less what China has been doing. Is like, oh, yeah. the CCP has been saying, oh, this is why you need the CCP is because we can make decisions swiftly and handle it so beautifully. And if you had democracy, it would be a clusterfuck, and there'd be no sure. solutions. And look at America, so it totally validates. Uh, their existence by this sort of thing so oh yeah you know it's even you know you know vietnam not a particularly democratic country right but Mm. uh you know had an amazing response right and it's not because they were coercive on this manner it's because Mm. like no they properly invested in the resources to handle it or Mm. new zealand uh that who uh comparatively got off relatively scot-free and it's not just because they're island in the middle of the pacific ocean right Mm. the government took sensible 
steps to limit the spread of the virus. Uh, yeah, and they're both done. Australia and New Zealand are they say that they have none. I guess Victoria, the state of Victoria is having another small outbreak, but like more or less, they're completely done with the whole pandemic. Yeah. And even an extremely right-wing country like Australia can get things together. It's mm. there's no excuse, mm. you know. You know, yeah. Australia has all the problems we have here in America with the Murdoch press, uh, extreme right-wing political uh, entities that are popular. Like, Australia is the United States on steroids, but they've managed to do it right. It's Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Anyways, so thank you for being here. I've really enjoyed recording this, and I look forward to... Do you have any plugs you'd like to give? Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you. First, I'll say thank you very much. Yeah, it's been a, a great first episode, and I look forward to the next ones. Uh, I will sh- shamelessly plug um, the Young World Federalists. You can check them out at ywf.world and join us on Discord um, if you want to get involved in world federalism. And I will also shamelessly plug my own podcast called uh, Total Global or, or Total Global, um, which is with uh, me and my wonderful fiance uh, Friedi, and she's German and I'm American, and we talk about. Um, the, it's pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, cool. I'm glad. So. Yeah, we're working on getting new episodes. We just moved houses or moved apartments, so we we need to. I don't even have a desk. I'm recording this like on a small table right now. It's it's kind of. I have my microphone clipped into a bookshelf it's it's quite a setup right now uh so we're working on getting settled and then we'll start recording more episodes but yeah so those are my plugs yep um so second that and links to all these things will be in the footnotes you can follow me on twitter at off brandon so off brandon all capitalized uh lowercase s for me thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you soon